Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guest today is Michael Michalko, one of the most highly acclaimed creativity experts in the world and the author of the bestsellers Thinker Toys, Cracking Creativity, and Think Pack. And we're going to be talking about his latest book, Creative Thinkering, Putting Your Imagination to Work. Michael embarked on his path in the Army where he organized a team of NATO intelligence specialists and international academics to find the best inventive thinking methods which they then applied to military, political, and social problems. He has expanded and taught these techniques for fostering creative thinking to many, many Fortune 500 companies and organizations ranging from General Motors to the CIA. Anyway, welcome, Michael. We're so delighted you could join us. Well, thank you for inviting me. First, let me say that this was definitely my kind of book. I just absolutely love mind games and puzzles and paradoxes. And the thought experiments that you posed every few pages were such fun. The only problem was that I had to finish your book before the interview, and I kept on going off into reveries. Right. Anyway, so let's talk about this thing called creativity. When you watch children at play, it seems that creativity is our birthright. Why do so many of us lose that talent as we grow older? I believe we, we are all born, as you say, as spontaneous, creative thinkers. And as you say, when you watch a child, give a child a box, and that box will be, um, to that child, will be a billion different possibilities that can make it into a car, an airplane, a school. They might draw a face on it, make it into a friend, make it into a desk. They have an unlimited imagination, and they're looking for possibilities, and this is because they're thinking productively. They're looking for ways to get things done, make things work. And then what happens is we go to school. Now, in school, uh, we're taught to exclude possibilities. We're taught to be reproductive thinkers in that, I mean, we're taught that whenever we have a problem, to fixate on something in our past that we have learned from someone else and how to solve that problem, then we analytically select the best approach from what we have learned and apply it to the problem. You know, we know what we are looking now for ways to exclude possibilities. Anything that is not related to the problem is excluded. Logical, analytical thinking is exclusive thinking. You are looking for things to eliminate from your thinking process. Now, creativity, as children demonstrate, involves a generation of unpredictable associations and connections between things that are not related. And we are taught not to think this way. We are taught this is the wrong way to think in school. It's like we enter school as a question mark and come out as a period. <laughs> me... To me, it's, it's no coincidence that all your creative uh, thinkers throughout history have done poorly in school. Leonardo da Vinci was not allowed to go to university because he was the, the son of a single mother. And he called, called that one of his big blessings because he learned to think for himself and come up with his own experiments on what he thought was interesting. Einstein was considered to be mentally retarded when he was 
a small boy in school. Once his teacher said to him to go to the board and write the number 13, which he did. Then she said, um, what is one half of 13? And Einstein said, well, it's six and a half or 6.5. However, there are many different ways you can express a 13 and many different ways you can divide something. For example, you can express 13 in Roman numerals, which he did on the board, now divided vertically, which he did, and he said, now you see half of 13 becomes 11 and 2. Mm -hmm. She walked him home that night and told his parents that he was mentally retarded. (laughs) Now, he was expelled from school because he was such a negative influence on uh, the serious students because he refused to think the way that he refused to to, uh, uh, cater to what to think instead of how to think. He's more interested in learning how to think. Now, when he attended, uh, tried to get into university, he failed his exam. He couldn't get in. He had to go to a trade school for a year before he could be readmitted to the university. Now, at the university, he never attended, seldom attended classes. And when he graduated, he was the only member of his graduation class that was not offered a teaching position because no professor would recommend him for a job. He was called the laziest dog they ever had. (laughs) And so the only job Einstein could get was a low-level, entry-level uh, job in a government patent office. Beethoven's parents were told he was too stupid to be a music composer. Isaac Newton's parents were told he was the most unlikely student they ever had. Pablo Picasso, when he was in school, his problem was whenever a teacher asked him what a number was, you know, the number nine, for example, she would say, what is that? And he would say, that's the number nine, or it could be the wing of a dove. Uh-huh. You know, they're thinking these are creative, intuitive thinkers, thinking the way we are all born to think. And uh, for that, you know, in, in school, you're punished for that kind of thinking. So to me, the great inhibitor of creativity has been education, formal education. Thomas Edison said his greatest blessing in life was his lack of a formal education because he said had he gone to school, he would realize that what he did was not possible to do. You know, I'm I'm looking at the the system, right? Our social structure. Right. It's it's kind of like the chiefs and the Indians. Right. Um, what would happen if we were a nation of creative thinkers? Um, that would be an interesting thought experiment. Well, I think, you know, to me, in my experience in life, the only difference between people who are creative and people who are not is that people who are creative, it's a simple belief. People who are creative believe they are creative, and people who believe they are not are not creative. And uh, we're, we're born to be creative, spontaneous thinkers, and this is the way we, my question is, why isn't everybody creative? And I think it's easier for people to claim they are not creative because then they don't have to make the effort to try to do anything new or different. You know, they can, there are many, many excuses you can use to not try to come up with ideas to improve your personal or business life. 
You could say creativity is genetically determined, or you could say creativity is uh, created by the split brain. You got right brainers, you got left brainers, and I'm a left brainer, which is not the creative side. Or you could say there are environmental factors that determine who is creative, who is not. But all these are excuses, I believe, that people use to uh, excuse them from trying anything new. Because to be a creative thinker, you have to put an effort into it. You have to learn how to be creative. And you have to produce an incredible number of ideas. You have to become productive. You can't sit around and wait to be inspired. You've got to go out and start learning how to think. And I think it's because of the effort involved and uh, you know the lack of passion that people have in doing anything for themselves that makes it easier for them to claim they're not creative so they can live a comfortable life and not really think much about doing much of anything. Would you say that there is a close parallel between a sense of freedom and creativity? Oh, yeah. These are free people. The thinkers, you know, they think their thinking is a free, free thought, and that's the way they live their lives. They, they're not discouraged by society or what happens around them. You know, they themselves will interpret their own experiences. And this is another thing, I think, that people have forgotten, and that is all experiences are neutral. They have no meaning at all. You give it the meaning. The person gives it the meaning. Edison, when he was trying to come up with a filament for his light bulb, he failed 5,000 times. And one day his assistant said to him, Tom, why don't you give up, man? You have failed 5,000 times. Edison said, I don't know what you're talking about. I discovered 5,000 things that don't work. (laughs) It's the interpretation we give to things. And in our society, people are taught to let other people interpret events for them. You know, a guy will call, a talking head on TV will come on, and he will interpret some piece of good news in a bad light, and people will accept that interpretation instead of looking at it, you know, for themselves and, and determine their own interpretation of their experience. Before mass media, people interpreted everything for themselves. Abraham Lincoln, when he was a small boy, Uh, His mother showed him no affection at all. His father treated him like a farm animal. They sent him to school with clothes that were way too small for him because they didn't want to spend the money. His schoolmates would call him monkey boy and gorilla because he was so gangly and and dumb-looking in these small clothes. Then after he graduated from school, he started a business and he went bankrupt. And then he fell in love with this girl whose family wouldn't allow her to have anything to do with him because they were such a low class compared to the class that she lived in. And then he ran for office 26 different times and failed to win office, something like 25 times. He was elected only once to Congress, and then he was not reelected the next time. Then he had a nervous breakdown. Then he finally married again, or married, and he uh, found he was married to an emotionally unstable woman, and he became president of the United States. Mm. One day a journalist said, you know, you are such a strong person. You have such a strong character. What accounts for that? And Abraham Lincoln said, adversity. 
Mm-hmm. I know that the way to live your life is to welcome all adversity and to overcome it, because it is only by overcoming adversity can we build our character and become a strong person. It's, it's... the way you interpret life. Now, you can imagine um, a psychologist counseling Abraham Lincoln today, what the mm-hmm. counselor would advise him when he was in school, and um, about how nothing was, it was somebody else's fault, and he was entitled to all kinds of things. Instead of looking for ways to overcome the adversity, he would be advised to, to look for ways to be compensated by other people or take for prison. what he had to endure. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting that our educational system is geared towards creating conformity, and yet the people that we remember throughout history are the nonconformists. Right. So what makes a genius a genius? Well, geniuses are geniuses, I think, uh, because they know how to uh, generate uh, many connections and associations between the similar subjects. In my book, Creative Thinkering, I call it conceptual blending. Every idea is a combination of something else. Two, two or three things more are combined. Geniuses are geniuses because they form more novel combinations than the merely talented. And, you know, it's, a, it's every new, if you look at any idea, you will find that it's a combination of something that has already existed before. Einstein's theory of relativity was simply a new combination of uh, space and time. He expressed it in a different way, a new and different way, and came up with this theory of relativity. You know, it's you look at any invention that's a combination or new invention that's a combination of what already existed. The man who invented Velcro, he combined a burdock with a zipper, mentally, conceptually blended the two and came up with Velcro. You know, and, and again, we're not taught to think that way. We're taught to, if I ask uh, the average educated person to improve the can opener, that person will sit down and only think of things that they know about can openers, you know, uh, things that they have learned about can openers. They, it's labeled and categorized in their mind. Everything about can openers is in one box. However, if I ask a creative thinker to improve the can opener, the creative thinker would say, well, can opener, what is a can opener? And he would say, well, the essence of a can opener is opening. You open things. And then he would think or she would think, how do things open in the world? How does a door, kind of door open? How do you open a relationship? How does a peapod open? And they're getting all these connections between things that are not related to can openers at all. And then they might think, well, a peapod opens when the seam weakens as it ripens. And this might trigger the idea of, a, instead of a can opener, having a can with a weak seam that you just pull to open the can. Mm-hmm. But we're not, you're not taught to think that way. You know, we're taught to be exclusive, analytical, logical thinkers and uh, creative thinking is not logical and it's not analytical. It's combining the similar subjects to generate a new generation of uh, connections and associations. Now, when you look at nature, nature's the most creative force in the universe. 
Now, nature, how does nature create? Nature creates billions of different species. And now of these billions, only a few survive through natural selection. Now, genius is analogous to that in that all geniuses produce incredible numbers of ideas, and only a few of these ideas survive. Mm -hmm. Most of these ideas are bad. In fact, more uh, bad poems are written by major poets <laughs> than by the minor poets simply because they write more poetry. Uh-huh. Now, in nature, going back to nature again, in nature, a gene pool without variation is unable to adapt to changing circumstances. So how does, how does it adapt? Well, it, you have these genetic mutations that happen randomly and by chance that ignore the parental chromosomes. And again, the natural selection process decides which mutations survive and which do not. Now, genius is analogous to that in that they all have a rich repertoire of existing ideas and concepts. But without a provision for variation, these ideas grow stagnant. Mm -hmm. So how do they get genetic mutations in their thinking process, in their thinking patterns? They get it the same way nature does. They'll introduce something unrelated or randomly or by chance into their thinking, which will provoke a different thinking process, and it will give them these different thinking patterns that they have provoked give them new ways to focus on the information and new ways to interpret what they're focusing on. Leonardo da Vinci, in his notebooks, he wrote about how he got ideas. And he wrote about it backwards because he did not want uh, somebody coming across his notebooks and discovering how he got his ideas. Mm -hmm. Or else they might think he was crazy, you know, uh -huh. if, if they came across because. He knew that the human mind is such that you cannot think of two subjects, no matter how dissimilar they are, for any length of time without connections being formed. These connections have provoked different thinking patterns. So one way that he would get ideas is he would throw a, a sponge, a paint-filled sponge, against the wall. And then he would look at the patterns. <laughs> and he would say, well, that pattern, you know, that looks like a man on a horse fighting a horse. Then he would say, geez, that horse looks like it has wheels. And then he said to himself, a horse on wheels. Could I make a metal horse on wheels as a form of transportation? And how that came to a bicycle. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And you get into the habit of thinking that way, and it becomes almost the natural way of, of thinking. One day he's thinking about sound, how does sound travel? And he's throwing pebbles into a pond and he's noticing the ripples emanate out from where the pebble head. And he hears a church bell go off in a distance. By conceptually blending the sound of a church bell and the ripples in the pond, he came up with the insight that sound travels in waves. Really? Wow. Yeah. You know, I was really intrigued by your talking about polarities, where you pointed out that all opposites originate from a common center. Right. This, this has such interesting implications for resolving intractable differences of opinion. 
How would you apply this, say, to the financial deadlock on the budget debate in Congress? How did I apply it to him? How would you? If you were a consultant to Congress, how would you point out that there... Uh, how, uh, what I would do is this. If, um, you know, if somebody called me and said, what, how do you get these two parties to come up with a, an agreement that they would both accept? Mm-hmm. I would say that um, we're bringing an outside mediator who has no interest in either party, say somebody from Australia or in the outcome of uh, the negotiation, then I would ask each side to accept the mediator, and if they agreed, then I would say for each side, you write the most reasonable proposal you can think of to resolve this conflict. And then the mediator will decide which is the more reasonable, and that's the one that will be implemented. And now, instead of... uh, uh, fighting against their, you know, trying to best the other party. Mm-hmm. Now the challenge becomes, how can I be the most reasonable in order to get our plan adopted? Mm. And that comes, that comes from a seminar that this Franciscan monk gave in Israel some years ago. He said uh, he brought up a Palestinian boy and an uh, Israeli boy. And he said, here's the scenario. Your father has died. And he wants you two to divide his property. And how should we do that? And the property will be symbolized by three gold coins, which he had to put on the table. And he said, how do you, and you can't split the third coin. How do you divide the three coins between the two of you? And first the Palestinians said, well, I'll take two, give him one. And everybody laughed, and Israeli said the same thing. You know, I'll take two, give him one. And then uh, and the Palestinian said, well, I'll take one, give him one. Then I'll donate the third one to, you know, some charity. And they sat down, and he called up two girls, and they came up, a Palestinian and an Israeli. And uh, the first one said, well, I would take one, give her one, and, and give the third one to uh, the state hospital. And then the Israeli girl said, I will take one, give her one, and then we'll both decide what charity to give the third one to. And at that time, the audience stood up and applauded because that was the, you know, solution to the Mm -hmm. uh, problem. Mm -hmm. And once you get people, you have to get people away from, uh, I'm right, you're wrong, this kind of black-white thinking, and get people thinking about, you know, what is the most reasonable thing we can do you got to change of attitude and change of perspective, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, change the way you look at things, and the things you look at change. And instead of looking in terms of uh, black and white, um, look and, remember the world is ambiguous. Aristotelian logic said it's either A or not A. The sky is either blue or it's not blue, which is ridiculous because the sky is a million different shades of blue. Mm-hmm. And that's the way we should look at life. You know, life is ambiguous. There are no such things as absolute, I'm right, you're wrong. There's no such thing as one right answer to anything. You had a really interesting illustration in the book. It was of two tables, and one looked long and narrow, and one looked more rectangular. Right. And they were at different angles from different perspectives. 
And, right. you know, just, just trusting your own eyes, you would say, no way they could be the same size. Right. And yet, if you actually took a ruler and measured them out, they both were the same size. And yet, your eyes are saying, no, 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 they cannot be. Yeah, that's because we, in, in life, we see what we expect to see. We don't see what is there. You know, it's uh, uh, years ago, uh, the shoe manufacturer sent uh, two salesmen to Africa to see if there was a market for shoes. One salesman came back and said, no one wears shoes in Africa. There's absolutely no market at all. <laughs> the other salesman came back and said, no one wears shoes in Africa. This is our massive opportunity <laughs> of all time. You know, we don't see what's there. We see what we expect to see. Uh-huh. And uh, Einstein, you know, he talked about how he got ideas and what his thinking process at one time. And again, he started out with all experiences are neutral. And we intuit certain axioms from our experiences, certain certain beliefs that uh, may or may not be true because it's all based on speculation. But these beliefs, they become our theories about the world. Yeah. And these theories that we have then determine what we observe in the world. And in return, what we observe in the world will confirm our theory about the world. So we become more and more convinced over time that these theories are correct when all of this is based on speculation in the first place. Yeah, you know, and on yeah, seeing so, what you want to see. Yeah, you see what you expect to see. This is why you ask a priest, um, you know, for evidence of God, and he will point out God's handiwork everywhere on earth. Ask an atheist for evidence there is no God, and he'll point out to the same the same handiwork as the absence, the absence of a God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you see what you want to see, and you, you, you know that from uh, your talk shows and the radio, political talk shows. You don't have to listen to a political talk show host if you know what his belief is, because you know how he's going to interpret everything that he talks about. Sure. Sure. Any event will be biased toward the way he sees the world. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's... Um, Unfortunately, that's part of our human nature, you know, to uh, we end up seeing what we expect to see. Indeed. Well, but in um, a way, that's good. See, you could take that and use that. My mother, for example, had a very hard life. She was, uh, had a very poor childhood, and we were small. We had uh, uh, not much, and we didn't know that because my mother was such a happy, positive person. And to my mother, it was... You construct your own reality. You know, you create your own happiness. So my mother's attitude was she would take whatever she had, no matter how little it was, and did the best she could with it. And consequently, Ah. we were all happy all the time. Michael, you were telling us about your mom. And I, I was so struck by that trick that your mom taught you about why it is so important to cultivate positive speaking and thinking patterns. Tell us about that. Well, my mother's attitude was, and it's true, uh, you construct your own reality. No matter how little you have, you take whatever it is that you have and do the best you can with it. But you don't spend your life whining about things that you, you you don't have or other people have and you don't have. 
and that is how you uh, you construct your own happiness in the world. My mother was a happy, positive person her whole life, despite the fact she had many people would say she had nothing. Uh, but as children, we didn't know that because we were all a very happy family. Mm-hmm. And I think this is true. You know, every, you interpret your own experiences, and, and it's your choice how you live your life. It's your choice if you want to be sad and miserable or happy and content. You decide. You know, nobody's deciding that for you. And um, unfortunately, over time in our culture, we've developed this this uh, entitlement uh, culture where everybody feels they're entitled to... Uh, you know, happiness and goods and everything else without any effort, without putting any energy into it, which I think is uh, very destructive. You know, mm-hmm. before the mass media, I think most people in America were more self-reliant and they had personal responsibility, and I think they were much happier. In fact, my mother one day had a cab driver, and uh, this guy had long hair, and he was wearing a leather jacket, and he, he had a pierced nose and his pierced earrings and stuff. And he said to my mother, he said, I don't want to offend you, you know, because you're an elderly lady. But what was life like when you were young? And my mother said, well, when I was young, we had nothing. You know, we didn't have telephones or cars. Very few people had a car. We didn't have microwaves or washing machines or all these great inventions you have today, your computers and your cell phones and, you know, you can text messages and she said, we had none of that. All we had was each other. And we would get together, and we had a great time, and those were some of the happiest days of my life. And this guy said, I wish I lived back then, mm-hmm. you know, instead of uh, in the present time. Yeah. You know, you, it, you construct your own, own reality. Victor Frankl, he was in a Jewish concentration camp in World War II, and his friends were being uh, exterminated. And Victor knew that if he did not do something, that he would give up his will to live and he would die. So he imagined that he was a lecturer, and he was gathering information about man's inhumanity to man for a lecture cert that he was going to go on after he was released from the concentration camp. Now, the, the human mind is such that the human mind cannot tell the difference between an actual, actual experience and one that you imagine in detail that, believe, that you believe to be true. And because he imagined it that strongly, he survived the war, and he went on this lecture tour hmm. about, about man's humanity to man. And the people who succumbed to, uh, woe is me, and it's all over, and I have no chance, they died. There was a, a Jewish woman who did the same thing. She imagined she was training to be a doctor in the concentration camp. And after the concentration camp, she became a doctor, became one of the leading doctors in her field. And tell you know, about it, tell about the the Gulf. Um, the, the, oh, the POW. Uh, there's an yeah. Air Force uh, pilot. He was held in solitary confinement in North Vietnam for three years. And he was worried that, you know, you'll go berserk if you don't have some kind of human contact. So he imagined his uh, own reality, which was 
I'm a, he imagined himself as a professional golfer, and he imagined himself playing a different course every day. And then when he was released, he played golf for the first time in his life at Houston and shot a 76. <laughs> I know there are these books, The Inner Game of Tennis, and, and it's all about visualization right. and how you actually create muscle memory. So um, you, you talk about um, the, the value of pretending Oh, yeah, you become, uh, you know, you become whatever you pretend to be. Salvador Dali, the surrealist artist, uh, when he was a small boy, was morbidly shy. When people came to the house, he would hide in the basement. If you spoke to him on the street, he would turn red and stammer and not able to talk. His uncle was very concerned about him, and one day he took him aside and he said, Salvador, the secret to life is to pretend to be someone else. He said, pretend you are an extrovert and go through the motions every day of what you think an extrovert does and go through the motions whether you believe it or not. And he did. And he went through the motions and he became eventually extroverted and it go, went down in history as the most celebrated extroverted artist of all time. <laughs> you know, you because it's like... Uh, uh, if you start mimicking people, even if, say you're sad and depressed and, and you have to go to a wedding and you don't want to appear sad and depressed. So what you'll do is you'll mimic the happy people. You'll smile and laugh, even though you may not feel like it. But what you'll find is that over time you become happy just by pretending to be happy. Hmm. And the same thing at a funeral. If you go to a funeral and you're in a good frame of mind, and pretend to be depressed, you will become depressed. Now, CIA researchers discovered when they were doing facial profiling that all you have to do, you don't have to even uh, imagine yourself to be happy if you could force yourself to smile, which they did with a pencil, all day long. You become happy just by making a facial expression. It's incredible how, you know, our behavior will change the way we feel about ourselves. And our attitude influences our behavior, and our behavior influences our attitude. And also involved is the way we speak. Now, we've been trained to, to think in deficit and speak in deficit. What do you mean? And by that, I mean whenever, uh, you know, if you ask somebody how they are, that person won't say, I feel great or I feel sick. They'll say, something like, not bad, mm -hmm. no complaints. Mm -hmm. This is talking in deficit. They're talking about what is not there. You give an idea to somebody at work, uh, that won't hurt as if every idea you gave before then you know, <laughs> did hurt. And what happens is speaking that way, you begin thinking that way. Uh -huh. And if you're thinking that way and speaking that way, you know, you, you have this negative attitude that you'll give all these negative interpretations and everything that happens in your life, all your experiences. Now, I once stayed at the Ritz-Carlton uh, in Montreal, a very expensive hotel. And I was happy, and I couldn't figure this out because usually if I'm paying too much for a hotel room, I'm not happy. <laughs> you know, I keep like this is way overcharged, and the prices are incredible. You know, I'm, I'm that kind of person. But I couldn't imagine, why do I feel so good here? 
And I talked to the manager the day I checked out. I said, I have to talk to you about this. And I told him I felt happy and I shouldn't because of those prices and all that. And he <laughs> said, that's because of the way we've trained our people to speak. He said, we all have, we have all of our employees take this course, which compels them to frame everything they say in a positive way. And that's why if uh, an employee does something for you and you say thank you, the employee will not say something like no problem. They'll say it's a pleasure. Mm-hmm. And he said what we found is that the more employees did that, the better the employees felt about themselves and their jobs. And then the guests started talking that way because the employees were talking that way. And then suddenly everybody feels good. It's simply a matter of changing the way you speak. Mm-hmm. And I have a, a friend who's a Lakota Sioux Indian who told me that in ancient days, the Lakota Sioux referred to every animate object as thou. You know, a person was thou, a dog was thou, a tree was thou, any living organism was thou. And he said that what happens over time, if you say you do this yourself mentally uh, for a week, you'll find yourself cultivating a deep reverence for all life that you never had before. You know, you're equating mm-hmm. it all as thou. Instead of and it. Suddenly a tree has more significance than it ever had when you call it a tree, an object. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Japan, uh, they have this, uh, uh, the very wealthy people play this game called uh, play, play, playing being alive. And what that is, is you imagine that all life is play. Everything you do is play. If you go to a funeral, you say to yourself, you're playing at going to a funeral. If you get fired from your job, you are playing at getting fired. And just using the word playing will affect our attitude toward the bad things that are happening in our life. You know, it's incredible. Hmm. Well, it's interesting that that connects with the Eastern philosophy of, you know, and, and Shakespearean philosophy that all life's a stage. Right. Yeah. What are um, some of the strategies that you apply in your own daily life to make it more creative? Well, some of the strategies that I use is uh, uh, if I'm thinking about a problem, I'll take uh, what I call a thought walk. I'll go to the woods or some strange part of the city or some unfamiliar place. And then I'll just walk absentmindedly looking for things that metaphorically might represent my problem. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, if I'm thinking about communications and, and some company, um, I may come across a pothole in the road and then think, you know, metaphorically, how's that pothole like this problem of communications? And then, you know, how, it, how potholes will occur uh, over time, no matter what you do. And you have to keep, you know, tamping a new blacktop and repairing them. And you have all these road crews constantly scouting and how you could use how you repair blacktop holes with uh, repairing communication problems and organizations and stuff like that. You know, one day in the Northwest, I was working with some engineers and, uh, the problem was they had this ice on power lines that would drag down the power lines. So 
So the problem was, how can we get rid of this ice in a practical uh, way? So at one point, everybody took a thought walk, and this one guy, engineer, comes back with a jar of honey. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, okay, you got a jar of honey. Explain to me how that could be part of a solution to our problem. And he said, easy. He said, we put a jar, a bucket of honey on top of each pole, power pole. The honey will attract bears. The bears will climb the pole. <laughs> Climbing the poles will vibrate the ice off the line. And everybody laughed. And this one guy raised his hand. He said, I was a helicopter pilot in Vietnam. He's absolutely correct. The solution is the downwash from helicopters. And that was a solution to the problem. Uh-huh. But you're not going to come up with uh, those kinds of ideas using the way you were taught to think in school. I have another friend who uh, published a book, wanted to publish a book. And he went to the publishers and... Uh, oh, I love that idea. I, I love that. Yay. Tell, tell uh, us about it. Uh, do you want me to tell it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a great, great idea. Oh, and he found out that publishers will not look at his manuscript because... He's not represented by an agent. So I went to agents, and the agents said, we don't represent people who are not published. So now he's stymied, and he uses uh, Leonardo da Vinci's technique of connecting the unconnected. I call it brute think and uh, uh, thicker toys, where you take something totally at random and force a connection between that and your challenge. He had a deck of tarot cards. Mm-hmm. So he closed his eyes and he pulled a card, and the card he pulled was the card of death. Death. Now, what does dying have to do with getting my manuscript published? And so he thought about it, and he thought about all aspects and features of death and dying, the rituals, the mourning, the meaning of all this. And for a week or so, you know, he's making all these connections, but nothing really usable yet the one day he's walking down the street and he's thinking to himself what does death really mean and he said to himself death means leaving one's friends and loved ones behind and he got his insight he went to the library got the publisher's uh, journal which was called publishers weekly at that time and he went to a section called people on the move and you would see that Joe Smith, editor at Harper Collins, has moved over to Scribner's to become editor-in-chief. So he would write Joe Smith's old boss at Harper Collins a letter that stated, Dear editor-in-chief, the manuscript that Joe Smith was so hot after is finished. However, I cannot find Joe Smith. Please let me know how I can get in touch with him to get him the manuscript that he so desperately wanted. <laughs> now, human nature being what it is, he was being inundated. He did this to 10 publishers. He's being inundated night and day with telephone calls, threatening him with lawsuits unless they gave him, they gave, he gave them the manuscript. So the same publishers who said that we won't look at it are now actively pursuing it and threatening him with lawyers unless he <laughs> delivered it. <laughs> and he did, and they had an auction, and he made a he made out very well. But you're not going to get that kind of idea, you know, using your usual way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I just love that. 
Now, you have so many different techniques in the book. How do you know which technique is appropriate for a given type of problem? Oh, my suggestion is uh, just try a technique and, you know, if you're having problems with it, just go to another technique. But eventually you'll find, you'll find the techniques that, uh, that work. You know, it's, uh, um, I hate to come up with a kind of uh, a graph or table and say if you have this kind of problem, go to that technique mm-hmm. because creativity doesn't work that way. You know, it's uh, just picking, opening thinker toys and taking a text, selecting a technique at random is, is probably the best way to go. Well, I, I just found the whole approach of shaking up your current way of thinking and and doing these random combinations and permutations and right. just whatever works. The the other thing you were talking about was just letting something incubate. Right. This is a very natural process of uh, of creative thinking that has been overlooked uh, in schools uh, forever. And that is when you work hard on a problem, you have all this information in your mind. And it's good to, when you're stonewalled, to walk away and forget about the problem. Because what happens is your subconscious mind never stops working. And now all this information becomes divided into bits of information. And these bits of information are combining and recombining and billions of different ways in your subconscious mind. Mm-hmm. And eventually, if you get the right combination, it will bubble to the surface of your consciousness when you least expect it. You might be taking a shower and suddenly this idea comes out of the blue. My God, that's it. That's the answer. That's your subconscious mind working on this information until it comes up with the right combination, the right conceptual mm-hmm. blend of information. And surveys of scientists throughout uh, uh, experimental psychologists have uh, found that uh, most scientists get their ideas, creative ideas, when they least expect them. Mm-hmm. You know, when they've given up on a problem or they're out doing something else, uh, you know, suddenly they'll get their insight. And you probably remember when you were in school, you'd study hard for an exam, you take the exam, and then two weeks later, you're coming up with these answers that you had studied that you did yeah. come up on the day yeah. of the test. Mm-hmm. At, yeah. at your your mind. Bertrand Russell, he had a disciplined way of doing it. He would work two months hard on a math problem, then he'd put it away for a month, and then invariably he said when he came back, it would be solved. Yeah. And Norman Mailer, the author, whenever he was stonewalled, he would write a letter to his uh, subconscious mind and describe, you know, what he was doing with this book and so on, then he would say, let me know when you solve this. Mm-hmm. And put it in his desk. And a couple <laughs> of days later, invariably, he'd say, oh, yeah, that's what I should do. You got it. Yeah, oh, oh, great. Michael, I could talk to you all day, but unfortunately we don't have all day. So how do people find out more about you and your work? What's your website? My website is www dot creative thinking all one word dot net creative thinking dot net terrific well we've been speaking with michael michalko author of creative thinkering putting your imagination to work his website is creative thinking dot net michael thank you so much for joining us well thank you for inviting me i enjoyed it it's been my pleasure 
I hope you'll join us next week on New Consciousness Review when my guest will be filmmaker Jonas Elrod. We'll be talking about his documentary, Wake Up. And now we're going to conclude today's show with the track of the week from members of the Positive Music Association. Their music styles range from pop and rock to folk and jazz and all have positive messages designed to uplift, heal, or enlighten. This week we're featuring a song called One Human Family by David Pomerantz. David is one of the most prolific songwriters and recording artists on the scene today. His songs and recordings have sold over 35 million copies worldwide, and his musical projects have earned him a total of 18 gold and 22 platinum records. So here we go, One Human Family. should trust people outside of your family for they will only make you cry stay with the ones who love you and kiss the others goodbye but I say no that's not
thank you very much. Thank you. That was One Human Family by David Pomerantz. David is one of the PMA's growing group of musicians who are using music not only to entertain, but to make a positive difference in people's lives and in the world. To find out more about David's music, go to officialdavidpomeranz.com. Pomeranz is P-O-M-E-R-A-N-Z.com. And to discover more great music or to join the PMA, go to positivemusicassociation.com. If you enjoyed our show, why don't you join our free community of creative thinkers and inspiring authors at ncreview.com. And if you have any comments on the show, I would love to hear from you. You can email me at miriam at ncreview.com or leave a comment on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash ncreview. And please, don't forget to tell your friends. So, that's it for this week. Until next week, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.